month of March, and our month, our March month theme is open to possibilities. Open to possibilities. What a wonderful idea that is. And we know it is truth, right? We know that that is principle, that we have free will and we have the freedom to choose. So today's talk is name your game. Name your game. Remember, um, do you remember Terry McBride? I know he spoke here. He was a guest speaker several times here at Vision. And he, uh, wonderful, wonderful motivational speaker, spoke in, in truth and spoke principle so well. Um, and one of the things I remember him saying was, the universe speaks to us all the time. And the universe says, you pick the game and I will play with you there. And I love that idea that he brought forth, right? I like that. You pick the game, and I will play with you there. That's what the universe tells us all the time. Sounds like fun, right? I think it sounds like fun. Anyway, it may not be fun all the time. It depends on what we pick. Sometimes it can be high drama. Sometimes it can be cheap melodrama. Sometimes it can be a comedy. But we are the ones who pick the game. Now, now Terry McBride was referring to the love and the law and the way principle plays out in our lives, this divine creative process, where we pick, we choose, we, our predominant thought is what drives the entire creative process on our behalf right? So we pick the game. We play the loneliness game, or we play the I'm so broke I can't pay my rent game, or we play the, oh, you know, everybody likes me, life is a bowl of cherries game, or I always get the best parking spot, right, in the lot game. And the law makes a mold of that and begins to form our experience of life because love points the way and law makes the way possible. So whatever our predominant thought is, that is what falls into the law and that is what the law makes the mold of and that is what results as a manifestation, as our experience of life. And we think thoughts of illness or sadness or wealth or joy, and the law makes a mold of those predominant thoughts. And that's the way the divine creative process outpictures. The universe then is fully present in our experience. It shows up in all of its fullness, regardless of what we have chosen to experience. Spirit is right there in all of its fullness, regardless of what we choose, right? The law does not debate us. The law does not judge us. It simply makes a mold of those most predominant thoughts, and it begins to outpicture in our experience. It doesn't judge our choices. It simply responds to us by corresponding to our thought. And that creates our experience of life. And in Creative Mind and Success, Ernest Holmes said this. He wrote, life is from within outward <clears throat> and never from without inward. You are the center of power 
in your own life. You are the center of power within your own life. So you are the chooser. You are the, are the, the, the will, the volition, right? That, that upper part of the teaching symbol that Ernest Holmes created. The idea. And the idea then is made form by the law, which does not question. So we pick the game. In other words, we decide our experiences, Rich, poor, lonely, unfulfilled, busy, whatever, whatever it is. And spirit shows up in all of its fullness and participates for good. Regardless of our choices, spirit fulfills itself in that experience as good. Because what we know is that God is good all the time. Even in times when we exercise our free will in a negative way, spirit still shows up in all of its fullness for good. Always, always for good. You know, in 2005, the National Science Foundation published an article talking about human thoughts. And the average person has between 12,000 and 60,000 thoughts per day. That's a lot of thoughts floating through our head, right? Between 12,000 and 60,000 thoughts per day. Of those thoughts, 80% of them are negative. That is a lot to overcome. 80% of them are negative. And here's another statistic. 95% of those daily thoughts are the same repetitive thought you thought the day before. And of those 95 repetitive thoughts, 80% of those are negative. Oh, like, where is the hope there, right? Oh my gosh, right? So, so here's the thing. We are geared to notice negative because noting the negative thing in our environment was to our ancestors the thing that could harm us, the thing that could kill us. So noticing a negative, uh, you know, it, millennia ago kept us alive. It kept us alive. A twig snaps in the dark, right, outside of the, outside of the light of our village. It could be a tiger ready to pounce on us, ready to eat us. We are geared to be alert to the negative. It could be a neighboring village ready to attack us and steal all of our stuff. It was important to be at the ready because being at the ready meant the difference between life and death in ancient days. So, so what happens on a biochemical level is that cortisol, right? That is the warning brain chemical. It flows through us and man, we snap to alert right away. Impending danger. We become alert to it. That's what our negative thoughts do to us, right? And like I said, it was the difference between life and death in those days. Now, we have another brain chemical called dopamine. And when it flows, it is the love chemical, right? So we get the warm fuzzies. But it's not as important to our survival to be alert to warm fuzzies, right? I mean, it's just not because they can't hurt us. So now here we are in the 21st century, and those brain chemicals still do their jobs. They still do. Those negative uh, 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 alerts send cortisol fly, flowing through our body and put us on high alert 
to uh, impending doom, you know, to disaster, to the tiger, to the to whatever. But in the 21st century, they don't usually mean life or death, right? The cortisol flows because why? Because you're vying for a position in your company that somebody else is vying for. Or, um, or the person that you're dating wants to all of a sudden so back off and, you know, cool down things and not see you that often. Or, or the snake in the lawn that scares you, you know, and your heart is pounding turns out to be the garden hose. But we are still attuned to the negative. We are still programmed to go to high alert when there is a negative force, force or, or thought or image, right? So, so what do we do about that? Because what we know in religious science is that we have to change our thinking in order to change our life. And I would suggest we have to change the negative thinking, absolutely. Because I don't know about you, but I don't want to play that game anymore. I don't want to play the, the let's go negative and the universe says yes. I don't want to meet spirit on the field of negativity, right? Oh, God, I'm so worried. I'm so worried about this thing. And the universe says, okay, here's more stuff to worry about, right? Okay, I'll meet you in the field of all worry. I don't want to pick that game anymore and have spirit play with me at that level. So, so here we are trying to do something else, right? You know, the whole negative game, you know, been there, done that. We, and, and what we're doing as we're changing our thinking, changing our lives, is that we're changing, right, eons of negative thinking. And so we have to be those guardians at the gate. We have to see what we're thinking about. We have to come to terms with what we're thinking about. We have to think about what we're thinking about in order to change it. Ernest Holmes in The Science of Mind wrote, we need not worry how things are coming out. The law takes care of everything and returns to each exactly what is his due. Okay. So that could be both the blessing and the curse, right? Returns to us our due, returns exactly what we're thinking. So if our thinking is 85 or 90% negative, we must attend to that. That's why this is a mind training. That's why the science of mind and spirit is that, the science of mind, so that we can change our thinking. It is possible to change our thinking. And then that changes the outcome. It changes the manifestation. To change our thinking is to change our lives. Ernest Holmes was absolutely correct about that. And you know, sometimes it's easy to change our thinking about a subject. Sometimes it's the biggest challenge we have. But that is what is set before us. You know, and in all the New Thought writings, it is most important that we stay positive in almost all of them, all of, uh, regardless of who is the author. Almost all of the New Thought writings state the same thing, that we must reside in the positive, to be the guardian at the gate of your mind, to be conscious and aware of the thoughts that are floating through your mind when you don't even think you're thinking. Right? Even the mind at rest has, has hundreds, clearly, between 12,000 and 60,000 thoughts floating through it in a day. There are things floating through we're not even paying attention to. And yet, they're building and building and building this negative. So we must be aware of them and we must 
transform them. You know, and it's not an easy task sometimes. Like I said, sometimes you can change it like that. Sometimes a negative thought comes to our mind. We're like, oh my gosh, how long have I been thinking that? Is that serving me today? No, it's not. And it's easy to change that thought. But sometimes there are thoughts that have been around for a lifetime. And it, and it presents more of a challenge to us. And thank God we have new thought, right? And, and, and we're so grateful that we have these new thought teachers that have written this stuff down over the eons, you know, all going all the way back to the beginning, to the transcendentalists, to the early, early 1800s, where new thought has, had its origins that we have. And even then, they were picking up on things that were ancient, because we know this goes way back. This goes back to the Gnostics and the Greeks. And, and, the, and the new thought is actually ancient wisdom, isn't it? New thought is really ancient wisdom. So that we have writers throughout the years that have all reinforced what we know to be true. We have writers like Emma Curtis Hopkins and, and Florence Scoville Shin and Ernest Holmes and Joel Goldsmith and any, any number of these writers who guided us and directed us on how to change our thinking. How do we do it? You know, because this is a practical spirituality. We say that all the time. Transforming lives through practical spirituality. This is a practical spirituality. We tell you how. We give you tools. This is, this is what you do with them, and, and this is kind of the result you'll get. Emma Curtis Hopkins did an entire Bible series. She did Bible interpretations. This was back in the late 1800s. And she, uh, and she gave us practical ways for us to change our thinking about things. And, and because we change our thinking, our life then out pictures differently. And some of the stories, well, all of the stories that she told us, all of those Bible stories, she gave us the metaphysical interpretations for. And it was for the, for the practical purpose of changing our lives, you know? So I just want to talk about the, this one in particular, you know, the Sermon on the Mount. That is kind of the most popular, I think, sermon that Jesus ever gave. It's the most popular one. It shows up in the Gospels, you know, we talk about it at length. But she gave it this, this metaphysical interpretation that I want to share with you because it's important for us to know because, because she was giving us a way to change our lives. She was giving us a way that Jesus taught how to change your thinking, how to change your life. And the first thing about that story, the Sermon on the Mount, is that Jesus went up on the mountain. And every time it says in the Bible that Jesus went up on the mountain or somebody went up on the mountain or somebody went into the upper realm or the higher room or up on a mountaintop, anytime they talk about somebody going up somewhere, it's about elevated consciousness, right? It is about that elevated or exalted state of consciousness. That's really all it means. So Jesus, in his exalted state of consciousness, is, is thinking and being from there. He's interacting with people from that level, from this higher state of consciousness called the exalted state. And it is in that exalted state where he looks out on the situation. And what is the situation on that mount? Is that a lot of people showed up to hear him talk right? A lot of people. And there was very little food. A lot of people, little food. 
right? So right away, there is, there is a challenge, right? There is, there is a challenge. And, and actually, some of the apostles had gotten together and said, we should just send all these people home because we can't feed them. There's just there's too many of them and there's not enough of us, you know? They just, they just were looking out and saying there's not enough, you know? And so, so they mentioned Philip in particular. He's like, there's 5,000 people on the mountain. Now, of course, 5,000 is a number that's used in the Bible frequently. 5,000 is just, is just the number that, that represents a whole sh- lot of people, a whole lot of people, right? It wasn't a specific number. It just meant they looked out, they saw a lot of people. And so the, the number 5,000 is used. And Philip comes to Jesus and he said, there's 5,000 people out there. It would take $34 to feed them all. Philip was the voice of liabilities, right? He was the voice of liabilities and necessities of thought. And then Andrew chimes in, and Andrew says, well, we have five barley loaves and two fishes. So Andrew is the voice of assets. So now you have assets and liabilities. It sounds like a board meeting, doesn't it? Oh my God, I have sat through some of those. And what they're coming to Jesus and saying is, the math doesn't work. We can't do this. We have this many people. We have this much food. It's not going to work. And Jesus, in his exalted state of consciousness, without noticing the hopelessness of the situation, too many people, not enough food, Jesus told all the people to be seated. Just be seated. Get ready. It's coming. (laughs) You know? This thing is happening. And he did several things at that moment. In his exalted state, he looked up, first of all. He looked up, right? Not that he was addressing a God that's far away or in a cloud. He simply looked up. And again, this up means exalted state of consciousness. He looked up in gratitude for what he had on hand. And he realized it was not the time to economize. It was the time to use up everything that he had on hand. And he poured freely from his assets, grateful for the food he had, and giving thanks giving loving thanks for five loaves and two fishes to do $5,000 worth of business with. And that is the lesson for us to take away. We must remain steadfast in our good regardless of the condition, regardless of appearance, right? We absolutely give thanks and give gratitude for the good we have, and we focus on the good we have, right? Emma says, rise up, oh my soul, right? Rise up, oh my soul. Be thankful for life. Be thankful for the good always. God, glorify thou me and make that demand of the universe. And he focused only on the good. That's all he did was give thanks for what he had. And we are taught right there, right there in that story, what to do, look up, give thanks for the good we already have, and let spirit do the rest. That was the story. That was the story on the mount. That was the miracle, right? (sighs) I remember when I was in high school, 
economics class. This is, I'm going way, way back. Do they still teach economics in high school? I don't even know. This is like in the dark ages when I was in high school, right? And I remember we were taught about this, this phrase. We were taught about the revolution of rising expectations. And that phrase became popular in this country after World War II the revolution of rising expectation. And it refers to a situation in which there is a rise in prosperity and freedom, which leads people to believe that they can improve their lives and the lives of their families even more than the situation they currently find themselves. And it occurs in people who begin to see what is possible. Right? They have to begin to see what is possible. People didn't think anything about their dirt floors until they observed wooden floors. Right? And then they began to realize more is possible. Folks didn't think they were poor until in certain places TV became popular right? in, this, in the corner markets or somewhere. And then they saw what others had. Right? There was no concept of more than until they had a mental equivalent of what more meant. And that was the, the revolution of rising expectations. Now, it goes all the way back, really, to the French Revolution. Uh, um, Alexis, Alexis de uh, Tocqueville right, wrote a book um, in 1856 called, wait a minute, I got it here, um, The Old Regime and the French Revolution. And, and what he observed was this, that, and, it, and for him it was, it was an odd thing, but what he recognized was the strongest revolutionary sentiment was found in regions of France that were prosperous, where the prosperity had already been growing. People who felt freer, people who felt a, a little bit of an advantage, who felt a little more prosperous, they were the loudest voices for change. They were the ones who fomented the revolution. People thought it would be the peasants who would have started that thing, the most poor among the country that would have started the revolution, but that was not true. It was formed in the minds of the people who had already experienced a little more, a little more freedom, a little more money. They experienced this idea, this revolution of rising expectation. It was formed in the minds of people who had already experienced. That is the mental equivalent. You see, that is the mental equivalent. They got the idea in their minds. They had something to compare it with. They had the thought in their minds of something better. And Ernest Holmes in The Science of Mind said, the law is infinite and perfect, but in order to make a demonstration, we have to have a mental equivalent of the thing we desire. A demonstration, like anything else in objective life, is born out of a mental concept. The mind is the fashioning factor, and according to its range, vision, and positiveness, will be circumstance or will become experience. Now, you had Karl Marx who said, 
worsening conditions lead to revolution. The more oppressed a person is, the more oppressed and poor and hungry a group is, they would be the ones to lead the revolution. But it turns out he was wrong. (laughs) What really happens is the better things become, the better we desire things to become. And it is because of this mental equivalent. This is exactly how mental equivalents work in our lives. This is why it is important that we keep positive thoughts in our mind. Because that is what then begins to manifest. We have to have an idea of what better is. We have to have an idea of what more is. We have to have an idea of what happier is so that it can take shape, so that it can pour itself into the mold of the law to manifest in our experience. This is why Jesus looked up and gave thanks for what he already had, for what little he had, not worrying about how he was going to feed all those folks. He didn't get involved in in the facts and the statistics like Philip and Andrew, assets and liabilities, assets and liabilities, and the math doesn't work, and there's a big say, what are we going to do? He didn't get involved in all of that. He gave thanks for the little he had, not worrying how he was going to feed all those folks, and knowing spirit fills in. Spirit fills in the void. What we focus on grows. What we focus on grows. And as we focus on lack, guess what? We get more lack. Of course, we we are picking the game. Well, I'm going to pick the game of not enough. And the universe says, here you go, have some more not enough. (laughs) And that's the way it works. We give thanks for what we have. What we have expands. When we say that it doesn't work, It is because we haven't tried it and we haven't stuck with it. When we say it doesn't work, it is because we haven't stuck with it. We haven't been true to the principle. We fall into the negative thinking. We we fall into the blaming our parents or blaming our bosses or blaming the government or blaming our horoscope. We blame Mercury's in retrograde or some other nonsense like that. We blame other things for why we're not happy or why we're not fulfilled or why we're not whatever. We're focusing on the negative. And even when we come out of prayer and out of meditation and, we're, and we are one with the universe, the first thing we do is get out into the car and what happens if it doesn't start or what happens if we have a flat or whatever. We fall right into the negative instead of blessing the moment and allowing spirit to show up in its fullness for good regardless of that condition, regardless of what it is. You know, we blame our bodies. I have this, or I have a tendency, or it runs in my family, you know, high blood pressure or cholesterol or whatever. But we have never tried true believing in the face of conditions, right? Yeah, sure, it runs in my family, but this is where it runs out. This is where it runs out. We have to, we have to stay steadfast in our belief. We have been treating the effects as if they were causes. We have it backwards. We need to play a new game. We must know our word has power. 
We must know it has power. Emma said, rise up, O my soul. Acknowledge our divine inheritance. Speak your word with power and authority. Align with that power that can flow through you and change your life. Keep it positive. God, glorify thou me. You get to name your game. And the universe will play with you there. Thank you.